Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Paul, we've been talking a lot about the lack of liquidity in the Treasury market, and I wanted to give some context. Uh, it's a more than 13 or $14 trillion market at this point. It is considered the deepest, most liquid U.S. bond market, and probably any bond market. It sets the rates for everything from mortgages to auto loans to corporate debt and is relied upon as a haven asset in tumultuous times. It has not behaved that way. Yields have been all over the place, jumping record amounts, falling record amounts. And this has led to a lot of profound concerns about the structure of such a crucial market to every financial instrument. Jim Bianco of Bianco Research tweeted out this morning, I cannot emphasize enough how dysfunctional the bond market has become. It is at least as bad as 2008 and probably worse. The dealers are barely making bids. This includes U.S. Treasuries and European sovereign bond markets are collapsing. And he goes on from there. He joins us now, I'm very glad to say, from Chicago. Jim, can you just get started? Why is it so concerning to see this level of dysfunctionality in the Treasury market? Because I think at very level, it's not reflecting the true reality of where we think the fair value of these prices should be. Um, Let me back up and say what's happened here in a nutshell is the virus hits. It has caused markets to want to reprice to some new reality that they think is coming post-virus, a world of more inflation, slower growth, lower multiples. The dealers step in and they do their bit where they make markets. I want to sell, they're willing to buy. Everybody swamped them, so much selling, and they bought as much as they could. They can't buy anymore. And so now the market is somewhat stuck. It's now not liquid. I can't buy. I can't sell. There's technically some buying and selling going on, but not nearly the amount that they want. The Fed has stepped in and said, we recognize the situation. We will provide the dealers with more cash so they can buy more securities. The problem is in the post-crisis world, we have created a myriad of rules on the dealers to not leverage themselves up, expand their balance sheets by taking more cash, because that was what caused the 2008 crisis. And it isn't just the Fed saying, we have to get rid of our rules to let the dealers do this. They have to get the BIS, Basel III, the FDIC, and this whole alphabet soup of regulators to agree to it. And that's not easy to do. So the the bond market is somewhat dysfunctional. So anybody that needs money, prices, anybody that needs to do transactions, it's becoming very difficult to do it in the market. And it's not really getting better. Jim, do you think there is a viable solution, even if it were to be a short-term solution to this issue to get us through this crisis? Well, there's, there's, the viable solution would probably be if there was some kind of a rule change that would allow the dealers to expand their balance sheets. Now, the risk with that is, all right, here, dealers, here's more money. You can now start making markets. They immediately start making markets at far lower prices than we see right now, which then becomes a problem. Ironically, this might be holding prices higher than they would normally be. uh, It's holding prices higher than they would normally be because they they can't make those prices at much lower prices. So 
it's not a good situation. The best situation would be that the marketplace understands that we have now found some kind of a uh, limit to the virus. They now believe that these prices are near fair value, and regular institutions step up and say, I will buy them at this price, not just the dealers. That would settle things down. So if you want me to say it simply, what would help the market? A million tests, because a million tests would help us understand the scope of this problem, because right now it feels like it's just this open-ended problem that's just getting worse by the day, which is why these markets are so dysfunctional. And it's also making it very difficult to read into some of the moves that we've seen and the levels of yields that previously were used as gauges for the economy and financial conditions. I'm looking right now, uh, a, a listener writes in and he wanted me to ask you about one month T-bills because the rate has actually gone negative. We are looking at, in the United States, the rate for four-week uh, four T-bills is now negative 0.04%. How is that possible, considering the fact that Fed Chair Jay Powell has said that he does not want to deploy a negative yielding policy? They did drop rates to zero, but they're not planning to go negative in the near future. They're not planning to go negative, but let me just put it mechanically for you. A T-bill is a discount rate security. So you pay 99.6 for it, and in a month you get $1. Well, there's so much money exiting stocks and bonds and commodities and gold and everything else, and it needs to hide somewhere, that they're buying one-month T-bills as a placeholder for that money, that they're now paying over $1 to get $1 in the future, which is how you wind up with negative interest rates. This is So it's a sign of people looking for a place to put their money after they've liquidated something and they're paying big premiums for them right now. Now, remember, the negative interest rates are like negative one or negative two basis points. They're not seriously negative like we've seen um, in Europe. So, Jim, just give us you know, a 30-second call from you on what we're see- beginning to emerge, uh, fiscal stimulus by this White House and by Congress. What's your take? Um, whatever they do is not going to be enough. I joked yesterday that we started the day with $850 billion and we ended the day at $1.2 trillion. That That is actually growing faster than the virus counts right now. And uh, <clears throat> I think when you start looking at what some of the European countries are doing, talking about 9 or 10% of their GDP in stimulus, we're talking $2 trillion plus. That probably will get into the ballpark range of what I think is probably needed. So they're getting there, but they're taking way too much time right now. Jim Bianco, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts there. Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research, getting his thoughts, Lisa. It's always good to get Jim's thoughts. He's been, I think, consistently, uh, let's call it, uh, you know, conservative in kind of his outlook. He's here been in, right. Yeah, he's been he's right. Been, he's no, been let's absolutely just, let's right. Let's just call it call a spade a spade. I mean, he basically said the Fed should drop rates to zero, and they did, and they did yeah. in short order. And I will say the fact that I, I'm just so struck by the idea that investors are paying for the privilege to receive dollars in four weeks' time because of the dollar shortage and because of the fact that people are that concerned about cash preservation and the emphasis on liquidity. I think that that really speaks to the mood of the moment. 
I want to pick up on the point that you were talking about, the tumbling commercial mortgage rate values, because that's exactly where we're going, to brick and mortar, in particular, the shopping mall. Wither the shopping mall in a post-coronavirus era. Tom McGee, President and Chief Executive Officer of the International Council of Shopping Centers, joining us right now. How bad is it out there, Tom? Well, good morning, and thanks for having me on, first and foremost, the health and safety to each of you. Uh, it's a challenging environment. Obviously, the government is uh, is taking, you know, unprecedented steps and appropriate steps to, you know, to uh, protect everyone's health and safety. But that's placing, you know, really kind of an insurmountable strain uh, on our members. And uh, ICSC represents uh, not just the mall industry, but all uh, brick-and-mortar retail, as well as the tenants that occupy the space. And so, you know, our request to the government is uh, to either guarantee or directly support uh, business interruption insurance uh, in the interim, in the in the immediate term, uh, for the industry. So, Tom, again, you represent uh, the uh, shopping centers around the United States. Just give us a state of health of where they are right now going into this crisis. Well, obviously, you know, the industry going into the going into uh, the crisis, I think, was relatively healthy. Um, you know, obviously, there are some uh, large macro trends that were impacting the industry around e-commerce and uh, technology in general and demographics. But I think the industry had evolved to really uh, try to, to curate its tenant mix to meet uh, the changing needs of consumers. Uh, but everything's changed uh, over the course of the last, um, you know, week or two, uh, and and changes by the hour. And we're clearly in a very dire situation right now, uh, as people um, protect their health and safety appropriately and stay home and and don't go out to public places. That's obviously having a dramatic impact upon retailers and bars and restaurants, gyms and service providers, and all the folks that occupy shopping centers, whether that's a neighborhood grocery center or a regional mall. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and by the way, our industry is here uh, and ready to support the government's actions. We have obviously have large parking lots and uh, some unoccupied space that could be used for emergency shelter and healthcare purposes. Uh, but we do need the government to, to step in and, and support the industry and provide uh, business interruption insurance. Tom. Guarantee. Tom, some people have been arguing that disruptions like this, crises like this, accelerate changes that are already in effect. And some people are saying the shift to Amazon, to online uh, ordering and, and shipping, is really just getting accelerated, but that trend was in place before. What do you say to that, to the people who say, this is just sort of speeding up what we already saw in retail, in, in, in brick and mortar? Well, uh, you know, first and foremost, I don't know that we can make any kind of long-term uh, prognostications around the impact of the virus and the crisis that we're living through. This is unprecedented, uh, so it's it's really hard to anticipate what tomorrow is going to bring, let alone uh, three to six months from now. Look, the the, the industry is enormous. Ninety uh, percent of all uh, retail sales still happen within brick and mortar retail. Uh, shopping centers are integral to every community. As people drive down the main street of their of their towns, um, that is generally the center of the community. And so there's a lot of attention that's often placed upon a segment of the industry. But when you really think about physical retail uh, and what it provides and supports to a community, uh, it's kind of integral to everyday life. And so I, I, the industry was not dying before this. Uh, it was 
Uh, it was changing and evolving. Uh, this is just a unprecedented uh, event that's uh, obviously going to have a significant and is having a significantly a dire impact upon an industry that we all rely upon every day. And by the way, the communities right. rely upon it. I mean, it's the biggest source of the industry, is the biggest source of jobs in America, it's the biggest yep. source of sales and uh, property tax revenue that supports you know community right. infrastructure, uh, et cetera. Right. Tom McGee, thanks so much for joining us. Tom is President and Chief Executive Officer of the International Council of Shopping Centers. Again, uh, the, that organization and Tom sent a letter to uh, President Trump asking for some economic relief as the stay-at-home movement expands, uh, obviously impacting uh, local real, uh, uh, retailers across the board. This is Bloomberg. Well, in the never-ending news cycle that we seem to be in, some more big news this morning. President Trump saying that the U.S. and Canada will uh, mutually uh, close the border after the virus spreads. To get a sense of what this means and what else is going on in Washington and in the White House, we turn to John Wingrove, John's Bloomberg White House reporter, uh, joining us on the phone. John, thanks so much. Give us kind of what the latest reporting is about uh, the U.S.-Canada border closing. Well, yeah, and uh, I'm Canadian, so I'm uh, <laughs> I'm, at, I'm at the nexus of this one. So the latest is Trudeau has been taking, believe it or not, stronger measures than Trump to close the border. And there was talk in Canada a couple of days ago saying, look, it seems like Trudeau wants to close the border, but Trump would get real ticked off and maybe close it to trade in retaliation. So it seems like Trudeau is getting what he wants, which is essentially a ban on vacations and tourism and leisure travel between the countries, whereas business travel and certainly the trade of goods would ostensibly go, uh, uh, you know, unaffected. Uh, yeah. Many question marks remain. We have no idea when this would take effect. We don't know what counts as business travel. We don't know what visa classes would still be permitted or would still not be permitted. This is an indefinite move. So, of course, we don't know when it will end. That would be subject to the virus. But, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a massive border that, you know, before 9-11, Many folks could cross even without a passport, you know, and now we're in a situation where they can't cross it at all. What that effect is, I don't know. I mean, how many people are really still going on vacation in this current era? But, you know, it's still nonetheless a big move. There's a question just about the state of play of all the borders that have closed so far. Can you just bring us up to speed uh, what we know as far as what type of restrictions there currently are with the U.S. and other countries? I mean, you talk about how people don't really want to go on vacation. Certainly people have been trying to come back from vacation in order to hunker down and, and what is it? Shelter in place? Yeah, self-isolate, self-isolate. Everyone socially self-isolate. socially <laughs> distance, self-isolate, right. shelter right. in place. Right. Fun times. Hashtag 2020. <laughs> yeah. Like right now, it depends on where you're going and where you're coming back to. Uh, the biggest restrictions that Trump has put in on China and then later Europe, if you've been in any one of a certain number of European countries, uh, he added the UK most recently. Uh, if you're a foreign national who's been in those countries, you're not allowed in the U.S. at all. But if you're an American, you can come back, but they're going to ask you to self-isolate for 14 days, whereas other countries are not making that request at all. And there's been reporting that Trump is looking at somehow further restricting the southern border with Mexico and, you know, warning that there might be some sort of, I guess, spike of folks fleeing the virus, although Mexico, frankly, doesn't seem to be having as widespread a problem as the states does right now. So I think that would be an open question as to whether that's legit. But he is looking 
to close borders. I mean, this is this guy's reflex move for sure. I mean, you know, he believes that the American borders are too open and, you know, not an issue has gone by that he has not used as uh, an opportunity to look at further restrictions. And the coronavirus is no different. Hey, Josh, you know, it's it appears to a lot of observers that uh, President Trump in the White House, the tone towards the coronavirus took a big turn several days ago, um, even though the White House is suggesting that that was not the case. It was more of an evil evolutionary type type thing. What is the feeling inside the beltway as to what really turned the White House to say, boy, we've got a big problem here? There's a couple of theories. One is that they got some data from the U.K. about a model. They talked about getting a new model over the weekend that basically scared them a little bit. Um, but, it, I mean, the tone absolutely changed. I know Trump is denying that it is, but, I mean, it, it, their tone changed. And their tone changed on Monday, and now they're taking it really, really seriously. Remember, it wasn't too long ago that Trump wanted $2.5 billion for uh, coronavirus response, and now he's seeking a trillion dollars for coronavirus response. So, you know, just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> give you just... a sense, $2 billion to $1 trillion. That's how much their tone has changed. And here in D.C., it's like a ghost town, you know, and so we've got the Senate still meeting trying to figure out what they're going to do. Are they going to pass the House bill? Are they going to expand the House bill? We don't know the timeline on that. Senators, frankly, that group includes a bunch of older folks who are not social distancing while they're doing this. So there's urgency uh, to this issue. And I think I think the Senate realized that. I think all of Washington realizes that. We're not seeing a lot of bipartisan divide on this issue. Yeah, and it's definitely like a ghost town here as well. Josh Wingrove, please stay safe. Thank you for being with us. Josh Wingrove, White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. Really interesting right now to see uh, some of the developments. Mayor de Blasio of New York City coming out and saying that the United, that, that, that New York has almost 1,000 diagnosed cases of coronavirus asking for help from the military in order to uh, contain individuals, but also to test individuals. I know that there are going to be ships possibly coming and testing people with ventilators and trying to to make sure that the response time is accurate. Paul, a real concern here about the hospital system and the capacity, given the number of beds, given the hospitalization rates, and given just how contagious this virus is. Lisa, I think what people are trying to, one of the things we're trying to get a hold of here is just kind of the, uh, kind of where are we in the curve of the uh, additional cases. Uh, Dr. Paul uh, Gepfert, professor uh, in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and also a director of the Alabama Vaccine Research Clinic, joins us now. Uh, Dr. Gepfert, give us your sense of kind of where we are in the curve of new cases in the United States. Well, um, unfortunately, we're in the rising part of the curve, if you look at any of the estimates um, or any of the curving trends, there's no leveling off right now. Um, so we still haven't begun to level off yet. So we're, I guess what we're, we're at the sort of logarithmic, logarithmic growth phase of the curve. Which is a little bit frightening considering the fact that Mayor de Blasio here in New York is asking for military assistance as he sees the cases absolutely surge with a nearly a thousand confirmed cases. And we've all had anecdotes about people having a hard time getting a test who think that they have the symptoms. So the likely tally is probably quite a bit higher. Given how quickly the number of cases is rising, the logarithmic scale, how many people in the United States do you think, I mean, what proportion do you think will end up getting this virus? Well, I think um, it all depends on our response to this epidemic, um, pandemic. Uh, if we take, if everybody takes seriously the whole part about social isolation and 
don't does not go out unless they absolutely have to. Um, and the people who need to go to work or uh, people who are needed to have a functioning society, um, so healthcare workers, police, ambulance, so on and so forth. Um, if we do that, then we'll, the numbers will be a lot less. I can tell you that we're on the same trajectory as Italy right now. Uh, Italy currently has 31,000 cases, and they're still growing. Um, and so it doesn't look good. Um, we we are a larger country than Italy, so we may be able to handle that a little bit better, but um, that's still not a great sign. Um, so and there's been estimates, I'm, I'm sorry, extreme estimates if we did nothing at all, or, or we don't even want to think about that because we are finally doing something. So, Dr. Gepford, give us a sense of kind of kind of how you think this will play out. It looks like the federal government is really mobilizing. Um, so it, do you expect it just – is this really a story right now, just getting test kits into as widely disseminated as possible to get a real handle on kind of what the numbers are? Is that, do you think, is the most critical issue right now? Well, that is. Um, I, that's one of the critical issues. That's very important. I think it's fair to say now that it's inundated our society and that people need to not wait for um, a test. If they have the symptoms, um, then they need to self-quarantine. And I've had many people here where I am in Alabama, which has been sort of late in the game. And again, it's because we haven't had the tests here. We were one of the last states to actually have a test. Uh, we've gone from one case less than a week ago to 46 cases today, so that's a huge growth. And I have a lot of pe- patients and employees who are starting to develop symptoms now. We even have one of our lead infectious disease doctors here in town that who started our HIV clinic many years ago who tested positive for coronavirus. So it's in our society, and I think People need to realize that if they get sick at all, the best thing for them to do is self-quarantine unless they start, you know, developing respiratory difficulties, in which case they probably need to go to the emergency department. Dr. Gepford, given the fact... I will just say that testing is important because there are... It's likely that there are many people who um, are not developing symptoms and people who've been exposed, that would be important as well. But we're not able to do any of that right now because the testing is so um, – we have so few tests to be able to do that. I'm Dr. Sorry, Gepford, uh, you do – you're a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. You're also the director of the Alabama Vaccine Research Clinic. And the focus right now is how quickly can we get some sort of medication, some vaccine – to uh, to be a circuit breaker here, we do hear about Chinese pharmaceutical companies developing something and, and actually entering a human testing phase. How quickly could we get something in circulation that could severely limit the, sp- the spread? Okay. So treatment is about to start. In fact, we've started that study for a treatment. It's a drug called remdesivir. Uh, it was actually produced in part at UAB, um, but it was a collaborative effort. It's owned by Gilead now, and that treatment has already started. So patients who are infected, who are in the hospital, we are doing a randomized control study to see if that is an effective drug. We should know the answer of that in a few months. Um, that drug could potentially be used for prevention as well, but I'm not aware of any studies that are looking at that for prevention. 
the best prevention, as you probably know, is the vaccine. Uh, vaccine studies have started in this country and in China. Um, in China, I'm not sure what their timeline is. In this country, you have to first do uh, safety and then safety and immunogenicity, and then you can do an efficacy study, and that generally takes at least a year, year and a half, if everything goes well. It seems like that's the timing issue here. Is there any way to accelerate any of those timelines? I don't think so. Not for the vaccine. For the for the drug treatment, it's a little bit easier, and it's and we already have a drug in hand that um, has been tested in humans already. Um, so it was tested. It was originally developed for Ebola. Um, so we don't have to do small studies at first. Um, so we can skip that. So that will likely be developed if it works more rapidly. But the problem with vaccine testing is you have to test safety. Uh, be, and because we know that there are certain vaccines in the past that have actually worsened disease outcomes. So you can't just go really, really quickly. And you can't even test to see if it works unless you have an ongoing epidemic. Um, and so the SARS-1 vaccine was developed in 2004, uh, and they had it ready to go, but then the epidemic went away, and so they couldn't test it. So. Um, but, Dr. Kepfer, just to sort of uh, wrap things all together, the big concern with so many people getting the virus is that particularly older uh, and also immunocompromised individuals have a very high hospitalization rate. Governor Cuomo of New York yesterday saying it could amount to almost 20 percent of cases, considering that that has been the rate of hospitalization for those tested. Is that a skewed number for just those who actually got tested, considering how we are not not really testing that many people? I think 20% is a good number. That's been borne out in China. Um, 17 to 20% of people who develop COVID-19 end up needing hospitalization. So that is the biggest problem right now with this disease. Mortality is bad. It can be upwards of 4%, and, and it's anywhere from 0.5 to 4%. But the problem is when you have 20% of people that need hospitalization, and you have the numbers that we're seeing, which I think is 6,500 right now in the U.S. and growing logarithmically, that our healthcare infrastructure is going to be inundated. In parts of the country, it's already that way. And so I think that's the biggest problem, running out of supplies, running out of medical supplies. Uh, look what is happening in Italy right now, where you have to decide on who gets care and who doesn't get care. And that's what we really want to avoid. And that's why this social isolation and staying out of crowded situations is absolutely essential for the United States right now. Dr. Paul Gepfer, thank you so much for being with us, professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and also director of the Alabama Vaccine Research Clinic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.